0: Did you know I wrote a book? My book, Diabetes Sucks, You Can Handle It, is your guide to managing the emotional challenges of type one diabetes. And I wanna offer you the book for free. You can download the book by going to www.thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash book. That's www.thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash book. You'll join thousands of other people who have read this book and taken the skills and tools they've learned from this book and applied them to their lives with type 1 diabetes. You can download the book now and start implementing the tools today. That's www.thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash book. Welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman, And I invite you to join us as we talk candidly about the emotional challenges of living with type 1 diabetes. We'll give you actionable strategies to help you face these challenges head on, reduce your stress, and most importantly, live a full life without letting diabetes get in the way. Hey there, welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Haman. On this episode of the podcast, I'm talking to Stacy Sims. Stacy Sims is a diabetes mom, and her son Benny was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was a couple months under two years old. Now Benny's 17 and thriving. And we're gonna to talk to Stacy all about her experience as being a mother of a son with type 1 diabetes. Stacy is also the host of the Diabetes Connections podcast. And she recently wrote her second book called Still the World's Worst Diabetes Mom. I know you'll enjoy Stacy's wisdom about parenting a child with type 1 diabetes, whether you're a person with diabetes or a parent. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Stacy. Stacy, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me.
1: It's go- it's great to be here. Thanks, Mark.
0: So for those of you who don't know, Stacey Sims is a big podcaster in the diabetes community. And she's actually the person who got me started podcasting several years ago. We had a conversation that really spurred my interest. And so now 110 episodes later, here we are with her as a guest on my podcast. So this is a thrill to have you here. So to get started, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and why you are interested in diabetes.
1: You got it, Mark. And I'm so glad to see how successful your show has become. It's so wonderful. And there was such a need for it. So thank you for doing it. Um, I, why am I interested in diabetes? I kind of wish I were never interested in diabetes. Let's all of us honest. are right. We wish it right? would
0: never part of, part of our lives. Right,
1: my son was diagnosed with type one back in 2006. He was not yet two years old, and I knew like teeny tiny little bits of information about diabetes because I was a health reporter for TV. I worked in local TV news and then in radio news. Um, I was actually the MC for the local JDRF golf tournament that they used to have. So I knew knew some families. All I basically knew about type one was that there were some kids that I talked to once a year who seemed like they were kind of happy, like they seemed like normal kids. So when my son was diagnosed, we were terrified, but I also had those kids to kind of remember and keep in mind. And that was our introduction. And as I said, it was 2006 and here we are now all of these years later. And my son is almost 18. He's a senior in high school.
0: Wow. Yeah. So I, I wanted to get into this a little bit more because being diagnosed at under two years old is not out of the question, but it's not the norm. Most, most kids are diagnosed, you know, when they're eight, 10, 12, or even in their twenties or thirties. And so as a parent, what was it like to have a child diagnosed under two? And especially to give people context back in 2006, when. CGMs were not a thing. We didn't have access to those that type of technology at that point. It's
1: really interesting to look back because in our perspective, we knew nothing different, right? So the signs, and I get asked that all the time, like, how did you know in in a kid so little who couldn't articulate things very well? And it's the signs that you know from everybody. You know, he was going to the bathroom all the time. He was excessively thirsty. And the real key for us was he started losing weight. And that's when I said, he just doesn't look right. He's not acting right. And we took him to the pediatrician. And to your point, she said, I've never had a kid diagnosed with type one under the age of two. So let's thankfully bring him in so we can rule it out. And of course, we ruled it in almost immediately. But I'm very thankful for her being able to think outside of the box that she was in. So since then, they've had a few kids in the practice diagnosed younger and younger. But for a long time, he was the youngest one. He was very proud of that. Um, But In terms of CGM, you know, we used to joke that we thought we were lucky because Lantus had just been approved for that age group that year or the year prior. And so what that means is if we had been, I say we, because he was only two, but if he had been diagnosed any earlier, we would have been on more of that scheduled insulin, right? The NPH and regular and, and you and your listeners, I'm sure are very familiar. Some of you with that old routine where you had to take shots and then you basically ate at the same time every day.
0: And woke and up I know, every
1: day. Yeah, you have to wake up at the same time. You administer the shots, you had to eat and you were eating to the shots. And our, you know, we, we had met people in our community who had toddlers on that schedule and, it, you know, very, very tough stuff. So for us to be able to use a long acting and short acting insulin and have the flexibility of being able to dose a toddler as he was grazing through the day, we thought we were living, a, as they say, where I live, high on the hog. We thought we were, you know, ready to go. And so he got an insulin pump six months later, but no CGM. Um, you know, he got a CGM when he was almost nine. So we went seven years without one. The last couple of years it was available. We could have gotten it a little earlier, but I, you know, I'm sure you remember they were only good for three days when most of them first came out. They weren't as accurate. You had to calibrate, so you were poking your finger a couple of times a day anyway. But yeah, by the time he was nine, we got a CGM. And it was not, it's interesting, it was not as life-changing as I think it would have been to get it immediately after diagnosis. It was still, it was still great. I'm not giving it back, but (laughs) it was a little different.
0: I remember my first experience with CGM was back in 2008 or so. And and it was a Medtronic CGM, one of the very, very old ones. And it was awful. It didn't work. It didn't tell me accurate numbers. And for the longest time I resisted getting a new CGM because I didn't think they were going to work. I didn't think they were accurate at all. And I took that, trust in the CGM and seeing the evidence that it was accurate that to actually bring me to that point. And I would imagine, I know this wasn't your case, but having a child at two years old and not trusting a CGM, that would be really scary.
1: Yeah. I think it also, it's, it's interesting to think about, um, when you're doing finger sticks and when you're, (laughs) when you're doing them on these, you know, teeny tiny people, um, it is a little scary only because they can't articulate as well right so we were always wondering like is he really falling asleep or is he going low um but i will say and i'm and i am a bit of an outlier in this i don't know if this is because we were before social media or because it's just the way i parent i was never terrified of the blood sugars i mean trust me when he was low in the middle of the night i was running to get those juice boxes i was you know treating quickly we were you know oh my gosh it was you know, your heart rate would get going, but I I didn't get a CGM for Benny because I was scared, and I didn't feel like, uh, you know, he lives on this knife edge of danger because we weren't told that at, at diagnosis. Our endocrinologist was like, "Yeah, he's going to be fine. You have to do X, Y, and Z, and it's not going to be easy, but, you know, he's going to be okay." And um, we kind of lived in, we leaned into that philosophy hard. Um, also, once you have a child who doesn't have a CGM for seven years and you don't check 14 times a night, you know, you realize once you get a CGM, you missed a million highs and lows. You just missed them. And we thought, well, he probably wakes up when he's low. He probably wakes up when he's high. We kind of thought that he had this internal system where he just was waking up because sometimes he would wake up and be low. But getting the CGM and realizing how many we missed didn't terrify me. It made me realize he's going to be Okay. I don't want to miss lows. I don't want to not treat lows. But knowing that his body had kicked in, you know, he had eventually woken up or, you know, he'd slept through a low or two or 200. It it kind of made you realize going forward, I want to treat this better, right? I want to get on top of these numbers. I want to avoid these highs and lows as much as I can. But I'm also not going to live my life in the soup of worry that he's going to hit 55 when he's sleeping. Does that make I sense? It's I mean, it's, it's from
0: hard. That, yeah. What you just said for parents of kids who are newly diagnosed, because of course, we're so thankful we have CGM. We're so thankful we have all that information and that safety net. But at the same time, in some ways, it's like being in jail. You feel like you're tied to those numbers. And what you're saying, I think is empowering to know that it's okay if people go high and low and it's okay if we don't know all the time. Our bodies are trustworthy and will tell us most of the time Yeah, when, when things something's going off.
1: Well, I do think, and I, and I want to be blunt about it, Mark, because I, I think it's important to, to say these things. And, and as you listen, to ask your endocrinologist about this, in some of the parent groups I'm in, there does seem to be this fear that if my child hits 54, that they are going to die. They're going to have a seizure. They are going to go over uh, into a place that I'm never going to get them back from. So I I don't mean to be flippant about any of this. And I'm not trying to say, don't treat, it's fine, let him sleep. But that's not how it works. And so I feel like these are conversations to have on an individual basis with your endocrinologist, right? But they probably will tell you, I I mean, I asked our endo years ago, how many kids in this practice have died from an overnight low? Because that was coming up in parenting groups. And um, I did not ask this in front of my child. I do not recommend that at all. Um, But I have a very good relationship with our endocrinologist. And he said, What are you talking about? None. And this is a big city practice where they see thousands of kids. So I mean, I hate that we're starting off on this foot, but I think it's really important to get to. It's scary, but it's but it doesn't have to consume you in
0: its fear, if that makes sense. So he was diagnosed when he was about two and now he's 18. So I'd like to walk me through a couple of kind of the milestones in his life. So maybe diagnosis and kindergarten and 10 and 12, and kind of tell me about your journey in terms of your anxiety and your worry or your empowerment with yourself and with Benny and his diabetes, mostly focusing on the emotions.
1: You got it. And it's so funny because I just did this exercise recently about thinking, what was the hardest for me? And it's three, three things. Um, if you had asked me years ago, I would have said kindergarten was the absolute hardest. He'd been, he, we were so lucky. He went back to daycare a week later and he stayed in this daycare and preschool. They were wonderful. My husband and I both worked and I did not want to leave my job. I just loved what I did. And he was very well taken care of. But when he went to kindergarten, I I was so worried. It was a different environment. Um, we don't have nurses Full time in North Carolina schools. He didn't have a nurse in his preschool either, but they just knew him. They loved him. They took care of him. And I was so worried how is he going to ride the bus? What's going to happen during the school day? We did a lot of prep work. We did a lot of prep with him. Um, we basically made sure that he knew, and don't misunderstand, he was not responsible for his own care, but that he knew how to do it. He knew how to poke a finger, he knew how to use his pump. Someone would always have to watch him but that really helped. But boy, was that hard on me, Mark. I just wanted to quit my job and drive to school and sit in the parking lot, you know, cause there's, then there's activities and there's festivals and there's concerts and, you know, he wanted to do everything everybody else did. I didn't even want him walking from his classroom to gym, right? Like someone hold his hand. What's he doing? So that was very difficult. That just took a lot of time. You know, it took a lot of doing it. It took a lot of communication with the school and a lot of conversations with my other diabetes mom friends about what worked for you. The the next hardest part was middle school. And it wasn't so much that he, you know, a lot of kids you hear about, like, they don't want to acknowledge they have diabetes or that's a tough age because they want to hide it. It was more like his brain left his head. You know, and I had the same problem. I have an older child. I have an older daughter without diabetes. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Middle schoolers are great kids, but they are, let's just politely call it brain fog, right? Something weird is going <laughs> on. The hormonal soup is cooking, their bodies are changing, you know, they're trying to be more independent and they're also just kind of dumb. And he would get so frustrated because he started forgetting things, the uh, diabetes tasks. He just would forget to give himself insulin for lunch. And he'd come home and be like, oh, I can't believe I forgot. And he was, you know, he was really upset. And that was very difficult. And we tried all sorts of things. But again, he'd had diabetes for a very long time at that point. He was not really excited about checking in with the nurse or having me follow him and text him at school all day. So we had to to put a couple of things in place. But the best advice I got for that was, it's not going to last. Even though I thought it was going to last forever, I really thought we were cooked. That was it. And to just be empathetic towards him, to just be understanding, to acknowledge how hard diabetes is, how hard middle school is. And then to have diabetes on top of that and just to kind of give him some grace and understand as long as our endo agreed, look, his numbers have definitely gone up. His time and range has gone down, but it's not dangerous. This is going to be okay.
0: And to be fair, Stacey, sometimes I forget to bulge for lunch too. So
1: I cannot believe that. Mark. Does your mother know? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell her. Don't worry. But that's the, the kindness of the, and the generosity of people like you with type one, sharing that with parents like me is enormous because we know our kids don't have to be perfect to have good health, happy lives, be independent, right? We don't, they don't have to be perfect. And I was really wrapped up in that and worried about it. And then the third hardest part, and I think this is, this is the hardest and it's on me is where we are right now, which is he's completely independent. He took a trip last summer, one month away from us in another country. And we can certainly talk about that. And he did great. And when he came home, I said to him, I think it's, it's time. Like, how am I supposed to nag you when you were just away for a whole month managing on your own? And he said, yeah, I think, I think you're in customer support mode. And I was like, what's that? He's like, I'll call you when I need you. And that's great news for a parent, but I hate it. I hate it. And he's going to college next year. So this is a very difficult time for me where I am not, I'm really trying not to hover. I'm not telling him to change his infusion sets. I'm not telling him to fill up his cartridges and not telling him to bowl this before he eats, right? I'm letting him go. He's doing a good job. He's not doing, I don't think he's doing as good a job as I would do. But at the same time, he's 17. He's not, and he's not me. <laughs> so it's, it's a good time to transition, but I don't like it at all. So that's, so tell to me, this is the hard last part. Summer.
0: What happened last summer? Let oh. And what, how was that for you? And how is that for him?
1: Oof. So in the summer of 2021, Benny went to Israel for a month with a non-diabetes group. We had actually been preparing for this trip or talking about this trip for a very long time because he has gone to a non-diabetes sleepaway camp for a month every summer since he was nine years old. My daughter went to this camp and loved it. And she used to tell him, you I can't wait till you can come. It's going to be great. And I would always say he's never going. But he reminded me, we always said, you know, you can do anything with diabetes. Stupid that we told him that because then we had to back it up. So we wound up, working really hard with the camp. They were wonderful and they have medical staff there, but they're not they not—they're—they're not diabetes staff per se, right? They're school nurses and people who care and pay attention, but he has to do all his care at that camp. And we knew that the summer before his junior year of high school, that camp takes the kids to Israel for a month and he was all in and he really wanted to go. So we made it work. We had to start working with them well in advance um, just to make sure everybody knew the drill, but he was responsible for all of his care. He had a backup plan. You know, He had we had a counselor or two that we checked in with who followed his Dexcom. Um, but mostly the kids all know him. And he's very open. But he always talks. The first night he's in a hotel with kids or because he's done this for sporting events and other things. Like he goes through and talks about emergency glucagon. he shows them the vaccine that he uses, the nasal spray. So that was really good. The funniest part about that trip, though, Mark. Was that I ask him all the time, like, "What do you want from me? How do you, you know, how can we support you in this?" And he was like, "I think you should use the the follow." while I'm in Israel. I'm like, "This is a terrible idea. What am I supposed to do? There's seven hours ahead. If your alarm goes off and it's two a.m. my time, or it's two a.m. your time, like, what am I?" But he he wanted me to follow him, so we worked it out. We worked out a whole plan of who I would contact and how we would use WhatsApp, and I had to put it on my phone and all this stuff, and it it worked remarkably well. He had gotten control IQ. Earlier, well, I got control like you in 2020, you know, the the T Slim and Dex come working together. And I think that helped a lot, but he did great. And when, he, like I said, when he came home, what was I supposed to do? You know, that's crazy.
0: So looking forward to next year and him going uh. back to college, how are you feeling about that? What do you think the biggest challenges and joys are going to be in that experience?
1: I like how you've prefaced it by saying looking forward to next year. I'm not looking forward to next year. (laughs) Well,
0: I'm looking forward. We are looking ahead to. (laughs) Okay,
1: fine. No, I actually am. I'm really excited for him. I think he's going to have an amazing time wherever he goes. He doesn't know where he wants to go yet. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult for me. It was very difficult when my daughter went to college. I I thought it was going to be fine. And we unpacked her room. She's in New Orleans. She goes pretty far from home. We're in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I remember being in the airport and just not wanting to get on the plane home. I just physically felt like I can't leave. And then I did and life went on and everything was fine. So I think it will be similar, but also harder because diabetes, he is my youngest. So that's also like we are going into the empty nest part of it. But we're talking about a lot of it now. I think I have the the advantage that he has spent every summer at this camp. And I do not generally follow his numbers because the Wi-Fi is terrible and he's not allowed to have a phone at camp. So that's an advantage. Um, in the summer of 2022, he went away for, to this camp for eight weeks as a counselor in training. He was, he was here in the US. He wasn't in Israel. But I went eight weeks with no Dexcom numbers. And I think that was really, really good practice because I hated it. And it was the first week was very difficult. By the end of the second week, I kept thinking like, maybe I'll just log into clarity because I know I can see it on my computer, right? I know how to get around all this. But I, I decided not to because... I I, I, want, I really wanted him to have the experience of managing on his on his own in a safe environment. So I, I anticipate it being something like that. I don't think I'm going to follow him in college. We, we haven't 100% decided yet, but that's where we're all leaning. Um, and I have I have ups and downs. But I have the advantage of a kid who's, as I said, is very open. I know he's going to tell his roommate. I know he's going to tell his friends. I know people are going to know he has diabetes. And to me, that's the most important thing to help keep him safe.
0: What advice would you give a parent? whether their child's two or 17, who is newly diagnosed with diabetes about what life is going to be like and how they can best manage their emotions around that new life? Yeah.
1: I think I would say a couple of things. And the first is you're going to be okay. Your child's going to be okay. This is going to be tough, but you guys can do it. Um, You know, as Mark likes to say, diabetes sucks, but you can do it. And you can handle it. (laughs) And you can handle it. Sorry, you can handle it, but you really can. But I think it helped me to keep in mind that the best advice we got from so many people was you're not raising a number, you're raising a child. And that means the numbers are really important. You cannot escape them in diabetes, but you cannot allow them to rule your life. And I have had to step away from a lot of parenting groups and a lot of advice that center around numbers. If my whole life revolved around, you know, pre-bolusing my son, waiting 15 to 20 minutes before every meal, giving three skittles when he was starting to go a little low. I mean, a lot of people do that very naturally. You know, some people that fits into how they live their life. They're more precise. They like numbers. and, And that really works. But it didn't work for me. And it was making me upset. And it was making me stressed out. I am a much more... I don't say hands-off mom, but I want my kids to be very independent. I'm the mom that was like, take your bike. I'll see you at dinner. Goodbye, get out of the house. Um, And we were lucky that my kids took to that. I think you have to keep in mind when I say you're parenting, you know, a child, not a number, you are, you're parenting in your own way as well. And diabetes can fit into that. There's no need to change your parenting to fit some other parent or some other experts idea of how you should raise your kid just because they have type one doesn't mean that there's a, a, a certain style of parenting, right? We all parent in our own way. So why wouldn't we parent diabetes in our own way? There's not one right way to get this. And then the last thing is, again, with be careful where you're getting advice, is you know there's a lot of scientific literature out there. And there's a lot of scary stuff out there. But there's a lot of really good news about type 1 diabetes. But you have to kind of dig to find it. You have to separate from... Um, you know, diabetes studies, which can be miles wide and include every type of diabetes. And then you have to narrow down to see, okay, type one diabetes, is there an actual long-term study that started when my child was diagnosed? I mean, we mentioned how much technology has changed. I look at studies that began, let's say 2006, when Benny was diagnosed. Those are going to be very different outcomes than studies that began in 1996 or even even 2000 before Lantus was approved for kids and everybody was on different types of management. And even the studies that started in the 80s and 90s are incredibly hopeful to me and show the progress that just having a blood sugar meter made and then having access to insulin and education and now having access to CGM. I mean, this whole time and range thing is brand new. So all of that to say, talk to your endocrinologist, Think about how you like to parent and what you want your kids to learn. And you'll figure out a way to manage it and fold in diabetes rather than changing your whole life to manage type one.
0: That sounds like great advice, Stacey, but I have to ask you. It seems like there's a little bit of a discrepancy because you're talking like you're a great diabetes mom. <laughs> and you just wrote a book. <laughs> Tell us about the book and the title of the book.
1: I will. Okay. Can I know, I don't know. Can you hear all that? There's some clanging around in my house. Okay. So the book is called Still the World's Worst Diabetes Mom. And it is the sequel to The World's Worst Diabetes Mom, which came out in 2019. And I joke around about it a lot, but it comes from a real place. Um, I was having a discussion online like you do. And as we did more often a few years ago, this was probably in 2017 or 2018. And someone was just Really not happy with the advice I gave. And it was pretty benign advice about, you know, not checking every two hours overnight or something. And he was like, You're really going to hurt your kid. This is terrible advice. Um, you know, really upset with me. And I said, Well, I just must be the world's worst diabetes mom. And I immediately thought, You know what? That's it. I really had wanted to write a book. I wanted, I had written a blog for many years, but I didn't want to just put like the blog posts together. And, and put, I didn't have much to say in the blog. It was just more like, This happened today. And I thought, this is it. These people are so concerned about being perfect, and if they step out of line with that perfection that they're going to somehow hurt their child. And that to me, is the opposite way to parent. You know, you're a parent. I mean, I'm sure you've never made a mistake, but on the occasion that you might, that's when you really learn something. That's when the good stuff happens. And your child can learn that they're going to be okay, you learn you're going to be okay. So the first book is full of all the mistakes we made, lots of funny stories. Lots of advice in there as well. The second book is more of the same, but it also kind of shows how those mistakes and how that fight against perfection has led to more independence and more confidence in my son as he's gotten older and how it's kind of working. I mean it's not you know we're not perfect, far from it. but I, I really feel like I'm able to illustrate again in a this worked for us, Right, I'm not a health professional at all, I'm not a medical professional. But this worked for us and if it resonates with you, here are a few things to try. And if it doesn't resonate with you, that's okay, you know, parent as you parent.
0: I'm curious, what has your son thought about these books?
1: Oh, he thinks they're really funny. He thinks I asked him because I was concerned, right, about the first book and we want privacy. I'm really careful about what, what I post online. And we talked about it and he's like, "Mom, I look great in these books. Like, you look terrible. You're the one messing up. He's like, you never say anything bad about me. It's like, wait a minute, you're right. <laughs> but what I, What's fun about the second one is the kids are both in it more. I have a couple of interviews I've done with both of them. I've thrown some excerpts in from Benny's trip to Israel. I also talk about how we prepped, how we packed and what he did once he got there. And he's in that chapter a lot. And then I did a whole chapter with my daughter, about the sibling part of diabetes. And I was going to rewrite everything, but I just put I put the transcript of our of part of our interview in there. She was really, it was interesting. I don't think we, no, spoiler alert here, I don't think we solve anything. I mean, those sibling conversations are difficult and I, I don't think I immediately made her feel better and she's perfectly happy with type one. I mean, she thinks it stinks and she's not happy with how it messed up her childhood. And he got a phone, you know, much younger than she did, which she's still bitter about. But I think talking about it, um, is really healthy. And I hope that that example might spur some conversations for other parents.
0: Well, great. Well, where can people connect with you and where can people find your book?
1: Well, the book is available on Amazon and anywhere you get your books, Target, Barnes and Noble, all that. But the best place to go to start is diabetes-connections.com. And then if I could, one other thing that I've been working on is a, an event called moms of night out, It's in Charlotte, North Carolina in January, and it's a conference, but just for moms of kids with diabetes. And it's going really well. The planning is going really well. And if it works the way I hope we might do it in at least one other city next year, and maybe more cities down the road, Mark, I'd love to do mom's night out everywhere.
0: (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Stacey, for joining me on this podcast. And I can't wait for people to read your book and to learn how to be the worst diabetes mom for themselves.
1: Yeah, be more worst. It's the best. Thanks, Mark.
0: That does it for this episode of the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor. Share it with a friend. Put the link in a text message or an email and send it to them and let them know how much they would enjoy it. Sharing this episode will really help me get the word out about this podcast so more people with type 1 diabetes can benefit. I always love hearing from my listeners, so please feel free to send me an email to mark at thediabetespsychologist.com or DM me on Instagram at the diabetes Psychologist. And of course, be sure to tune in next Thursday for a brand new episode of the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. Remember, type 1 diabetes is not easy, but you can have an easier time with it. And I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Bye for now much for listening. For more resources, you can visit www.thediabetespsychologist.com and be sure to sign up for the email list for access to exclusive content. I'm Dr. Mark Heyman and tune in next time for the latest episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast.